0: You know, we're looking at a asset right now to acquire that produces 35 million a year in EBITDA and over 300 million a year in gross revenue and we're trying to buy that from a publicly traded company
1: but you need access to cash and you want to build a reputation within a uh, a group that will continue to invest their dollars into your deals, then go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. The founder of Fund That Flip is Matt Rodak, and he's actually one of my very first guests on the show. It's episode number seven. Um, So if you have a chance, go check that out too. Familiarize yourself with Matt and um, what he's all about. But when you're needing money and you want an online lender that provides fast, convenient access to affordable capital for your flipping projects, then Fund That Flips the way to go. Their team has over 200 deals under their belt. And uh, you can actually, this is crazy, you can actually be approved immediately within 30 seconds once you put in your information. Uh, So go to fundthatflip.com forward slash bestever and get some money for your flipping projects. Okay, here's a no-brainer. Since you're a real estate entrepreneur, you know that selecting a health insurance plan is a real pain and dealing with the whole process is a pain. That's why I've partnered up with Stride Health, and they make the whole process really easy and they have a personal concierge service for you to help you out. They've got a fancy algorithm that helps find the right health plan just for you and on average they can save you 400 bucks a year and it only takes 10 minutes. Go to stridehealth.com forward slash best ever that's s-t-r-i-d-e-h-e-a-l-t-h.com forward slash best ever. Hi, best ever listeners! Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless, and this is a show where we cut out all that fluffy stuff and get straight to the best real estate advice that moves your business forward. We've spoken to Barbara Corcoran, Robert Kiyosaki, Robert Kiyosaki's CPA, Tom Wheelwright. Fantastic interview talking about 1031 exchanges. If you haven't checked that out, go check it out. Just Google Tom Wheelwright, Joe Fairless, and with us today. We've got a gentleman who works with one hundred million dollar families. He's CEO of Family Office Club, the largest community of family office professionals with over one thousand registered family offices and quarterly events. How you doing, Richard Wilson?
0: Great. How are you Joe?
1: Doing very well, my friend. And as I mentioned to you uh, before we started recording, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. Richard's got a podcast called, appropriately, Family Office Podcast. <laughs> very straightforward. <laughs> Talk about cutting out the fluffy stuff. I love that. I love the title. <laughs> He's also the author of the number one best selling book on Amazon within the wealth management category called The Single Family Office. Creating, Operating, and Managing Investments of a Single Family Office. I am your, I suspect I'm the most recent purchaser of your book since I I just purchased it right before we, we started talking. And here's the kicker. He runs a single family office with over $500 million in real estate assets, and has three, one, two, three, billionaire families, that's with a B, under contract as their buy side deal advisor. So I told you my head was exploding with different ways to approach our conversation. And uh, so we've got a lot to dive into. So with that being said, Richard, do you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now?
0: Yeah, sure. And I think that you know many people have not heard the word family office before, even somebody who works in wealth management might not. So I might just give a 30 second definition of that real quick. Basically, if you are ultra wealthy and you're worth 10, 20 million, 50 million, et cetera, you might want a different solution for protecting your wealth and managing it. And, and that is called the family office industry. It's a more holistic 360 degree solution or a different way to think about protecting all of your assets. And um, if you are a single family office, it just means there's a whole team dedicated to what you want to do. And if it's a multifamily office, it just means there's 10 or 20 or 100 families being served by one organization. So I think that's really important to note. Otherwise, people might just kind of disconnect and say, I don't know what this family office concept is, but I don't see how it's relevant. But it's very relevant because they all have real estate assets in their portfolio. So I guess to jump into background, you know, I got started in risk uh, consulting. Which is about as exciting as it sounds, and worked, you know, with a uh, Daimler Chrysler and you know large energy companies mapping out their risk controls. Um, I then got into the capital markets side of things in Boston, uh, living in Harvard Square and, and Brighton, and basically stumbled upon the fact that in the wealth management world, there's 500 books written, there's a thousand websites, 500 different gurus out there. But then when I stumbled across this, across this term, family office. It was very challenging for me to learn just the very basics. I had to read outdated Bloomberg and Financial Times articles and piece it together. And I was meeting with these individuals face-to-face already. So I just started you know, telling myself, like, well, if this is the 1% most valuable niche within all of wealth management, and I'm having a hard time learning more, I'm just going to make it easier for the next person. And selfishly, this will help me learn faster myself and just help me work with family offices more fluidly. So I just started sharing what I was learning each day, and we bought familyoffices.com the next year, and uh, that was eight years ago, and now we've held 49 conferences, and our website's most visited, and our book are selling really well, and it's been a lot of fun, it's been a fun journey.
1: All right, I believe I also remember because I've I've uh, listened to your podcast. I believe I also remember that you have you started out blogging and talking about this for a couple years, just educating, and then that snowballed into more of a business relationship with family offices. Is, is that right?
0: Yeah, that's correct. So basically, the more granular part of that story, which is kind of the fun part of it, is I was actually you know raising capital for fund managers and SMA products and while doing so I'd just write one blog post a week on what I was learning about family offices or I'd read six articles and then write my own one and cite all my sources and it was just once a week and I would get 100 visits to the day and I'd get very excited and I'd have my cell phone number on the website and someone would call me and you know I'd give away my time for free and I thought that was very exciting at the beginning and wasn't making any money and I didn't care because I had my day job and I realized after a while like huh there's something here like people value this let's write two or three times a week. And then it started going to 500 hits a day on the website. And it got to uh, three to 5,000 hits a day. And I got on the front page of the Boston Globe, the first place I ever spoke. um, I've spoken 150 times now in 14 countries. And the first time I ever spoke was actually at the European Business Summit. And there was two prime ministers on stage at the same time And I had never done a public speech before. So I was very nervous. I couldn't even eat that day. But they selected me because I would written 500 pieces of content on the space just by putting out these little blog posts. And they just thought, oh, well, this is the person we should fly to Belgium to to speak, I guess. And I probably didn't know how old I was at that time, luckily. but um, How old were you? That's how it all started. So I started at uh, 26 is when my business first started, you know, eight years ago. So um, I'm just about to turn 34 now. And I used to to hide that, but I've got enough momentum now you know, I don't, don't really have to worry about the whole, the whole age issue, I think.
1: All right. Here's the the question that is kind of burning in, in my mind is you are the buy side deal advisor for three billionaire families. First, how did you establish those relationships? And then I've got some follow up questions.
0: Sure. And people ask me all the time, how do you target family offices? How do I hunt down these family offices? So the way that we got them is not through hunting them down or targeting them, except for mentally, like with marketing and education, we target them. But um, it's really having them come to us is the best way. A lot of these families don't return cold calls. They're not going to meet with you if they if you don't know who they are and vice versa. And so we create valuable you know, pieces of content, like our interview here, and then that attracts qualified audiences or we'll create a book, et cetera. So that's the best way to attract these types of families is, Everyone says, oh, it's all done by referrals. It's like, well, great. That doesn't really help you if you're starting out at square one. So what you have to do is just you know, be resourceful and um, create resources for the niche area that's related to your expertise. So the way those relationships work, a little bit less sexy than it sounds, it's basically these families don't get access to a lot of deal flow. And we bought privateequity.com a while ago to increase our deal flow. We own about 40 different groups on LinkedIn with about 2 million members at Gives us a lot of deal flow and distribution, and so we share the deal flow with these very private families who just don't see enough deals. And then we get paid as a deal closes. The reason why I say it's not as sexy as it sounds is that, at the end of the day, it's not that hard to get a family to sign a buy-side agreement. It's much harder to get them to actually close on the deal that you show them. And what we've learned is that the more valuable type of relationship is when we can add more value through actually running their single family office or being their head of direct investments, et cetera. So that's what we're doing for the family with 500 million in real estate assets is we're running their single family office for them. And, you know, we're, we're bringing in deals and showing them deal flow, you know, every couple of weeks for them to consider.
1: Got it. So being a buy side representative is essentially commission based, whereas the, 500 million in real estate assets that you have with your family office, single family office, that's more of a retainer base plus probably some commission on top of that?
0: Right. Theoretically, you can get retainers and buy side, but it's very hard in the family office space to do so. It's not going to happen often and you won't get the billion dollar families unless they've known you for a very long time. And, you know, importantly on that, uh, the reason why it's called buy side for those outside of the you know Wall Street world is that we're never selling anything to our clients. We listen to them very closely, figure out what their strike zone is, what they want to see, and we only bring them what they want to see. And our fee is paid by them, and so we're not incentivized by some condo developer to push some deal on the billion-dollar family and say bye, 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 and try to sell them hard on getting them in that deal because we get, you know, we're not on that side of it. We're we're on the investor side, so we're looking out for their interests and trying to find things that make sense for their portfolio.
1: But you do receive commission once you close on the deal. So there is some right. incentive to actually make a deal happen.
0: Right. For sure. For sure. And that's okay. why um, many times in the family office industry, as a family office matures, you might start out on a, you, know, you might be incentivized to get deals done. But longer term, it's always best to have somebody on salary, maybe a discretionary bonus, and then on having profitable deals in the portfolio, not just on closing a deal because that doesn't mean that it went well for the family. So there's different levels of alignment that are, you know, can make things more ideal for running a family office for someone.
1: What are the parameters? And I know it depends on the family, but uh, if, if you can generalize and go ahead, and if you can't, then maybe talk about a specific example. But what are the parameters that a family looks for whenever they're investing their money in terms of the deal parameters?
0: Right. So we just went over this uh, yesterday. So it's uh, some of the numbers are fresh in my head. We did a webinar on cent millionaire investing, and in short, what we found is that if the family is worth a billion dollars or more, they almost never want to write a check for less than twenty or twenty-five million dollars for an investment banking deal or a real estate deal. It's just too small to get their hands dirty. And if the family is a hundred million dollars plus, we find that many times they might write checks for two hundred and fifty thousand to a million dollars for a piece of a let's say you know operating business or something they're going to be a minority investor in. but I would say those would be the exceptions. It does happen. Um, if you're syndicating the deal and you want someone to be a small investor in your deal to get to know you in the real estate space. but I do think that kind of the sweet spot for the hundred million plus families, which are going to be the most common types of family office families that you meet, I think the sweet spot is really in that five to ten million dollar or three to ten million dollar range. And that's going to make it most likely that they're not going to have to put too large of a percentage of their portfolio into your one deal.
1: And then with that range, that's the money that they're looking to invest. What are the the details or, or parameters that they're actually looking for with that money?
0: Sure. I would say that right now, given the current marketplace, a lot of families who are second, third, fourth generation are getting apartment buildings and putting just a little bit of debt on them. Sometimes it might be in a trust vehicle. And because of that approach, if they want it to be in a very safe, secure location, then they're obviously paying a you know 3 to 5% cap rate in a major city. I would say that most families are not second, third, fourth generation. Most are first generation because the wealth gets dispersed and lost as you go forward. And that's going to change the parameters. But in, as an overall generalization, a lot of families get more excited to look at a 100, 200 plus Apartment building unit, for example, if the cap rate is seven percent or greater, they get excited by going into you know B and C apartments, uh, distressed situations, things where recapitalization is what is needed to get that great return because that is their advantage in the marketplace is they can be that you know source of recapitalization. So I think that in terms of IRR, a lot of families are looking for plus in real estate, because if you get a 7% cap rate and put a normal amount of debt on it, you know, it doesn't take rocket scientists to get a a 10, 11, 12% IRR. So those sponsors out there listening, you know, I would, I would have, you know, your promote splits, you know, go up after 12% I think that would be the the fair break point. I would say for development or severely distressed properties, 20% is really kind of the, the guideline or the target for a lot of families. And, you know, most important thing is if you come in contact with one of these families, it's just to listen very closely to what their specific parameters are, because some will only do, you know, office investments. Almost all of them are open to an apartment building investment. Um, but class by class of real estate, you know, their parameters obviously will, will change based on their geography and, you know, uh, their concentration in their portfolio.
1: And I remember listening to one of your podcasts and you mentioned the point of emphasis for most, if not all, was control in the deal. Can you elaborate on that?
0: Sure. I think many of these families have a track record that got them to being worth $100 million. They navigated the markets, cash flow, payroll, etc. They're used to controlling their destiny. They're not usually comfortable giving that up to a third party. They want to be able to close things down, fire someone and replace it, or make a decision to sell or not sell uh, if it's their money at risk. And there's multiple layers of risk they feel when they're not in control. One is even if the skill set of the counterparty is equal or greater, there might not be complete alignment. Maybe the sponsor has no money in the deal or three or five or 10% in the deal where the family is 90% of their capital at risk. So they're going to care a lot more about the rehab cost per door or on some, some finer details or legal risk, for example. But the other risk is that, you know, many times the skill set is not there. The person on the other side of the deal is not worth a hundred million dollars. They haven't gotten, you know, that far into their success curve. And so the family wants to have that, that ultimate control for that reason as well.
1: I want to follow up on the statement you made earlier about most families are first generation, not third or fourth, because it, it got lost.
0: Mm-hmm. What happened? Many times, you know, the family grows and there's different sex within the family. There's different kind of mini clans within the family. And so the family might be worth $100 million, but then either through maybe some poor investments or maybe not. But then through the family, you know, there's initially maybe three kids in the family. Each of them have three kids. It all gets passed down within trust vehicles to all of those, you know, 10 or 12 kids down below, and that disperses the wealth. And so each one of those kids might inherit, you know, three, five or ten million dollars. But many times, if you grow up in Monaco flying around on private airplanes and go to a $40,000 a year school, uh, as many people here in Miami do who are, you know, from ultra wealthy families, you know, I think that that doesn't always engender the biggest work ethic. And it's very hard to replicate the situation that the hundred millionaire, the centimillionaire grew up in that burned that work ethic deep into their brain. Even when they're worth a hundred million dollars, they might love the stress of working 55 hours a week. And I think it's near impossible to tell them you have to work very hard for your money if you want to make it in this world when you are flying to Fiji and the Bahamas and Cayman Islands and going on private aircrafts. And so I think that you know, one other thing that's a little bit backwards, too, is I see a lot of families say, well, we want to make sure the next generation is involved. Let's get them involved somehow. Maybe we'll put them in charge of the foundation. They can write checks and give money away to people, and that'll teach them to be grateful. In my mind, I think that's the worst idea ever. You know, what you're teaching them is that, here, we have lots of money. Let's give it away. And you want to, quote unquote, give back. You want to be grateful and appreciative. But, you know, in one of your you know, prep questions was about, you know, how do you like to give back? And in my mind, if I give enormous value to my customers, and I treat my employees very well, one of my employees had a big medical problem, she could not work for two or three months, I kept her on her salary, we kept her in the company, no problem. She's more loyal than ever now. Like, I don't feel like I've taken. So I don't really feel a need to quote, unquote, give back, because I feel like I'm giving as I'm growing, you know, my business.
1: Yeah, instead of putting them in charge of the foundation, maybe they should be volunteering their time for the recipient's business or people within that entity that's receiving that
0: money. Yeah, the best idea I've found is just like a soundbite idea to, to phrase what you just said basically is, you know, some families will say, we'll pay for your education, even advanced education when you turn 30, we'll help you with a down payment on a house so you don't have debt stress or student loan stress. But then the only way you get any additional money, you'll get no inheritance, but the only way to get more money is you apply to the quote unquote family bank and the elders of the family have to look at your business plan, make sure it is sound and well thought through and well researched, and then we will supply you start seed money to start a business that's approved because that encourages entrepreneurialism and that's what's gonna grow the family wealth to the next generation. Sitting on it and dispersing it, trying to diversify it, typically it's gonna slowly dwindle and just be dispersed among next generations and you won't get another spike upwards Uh, with the family net worth. And so that this kind of keeps the fuel of, you know, business startups in the family.
1: With your client, it's a single family office. So that by definition, I believe means that it's just one family with Mm -hmm. over 500 million in real estate assets. Mm -hmm. How much of that is kind of playing counselor or psychologist versus here are some opportunities and here's the lay of the land from a macro level and talking business points?
0: I think with this family it's unique. The patriarch, the head of the family is 46 years old and he's very much involved. You know, we're looking at a asset right now to acquire that produces 35 million a year in EBITDA and over 300 million a year in gross revenue and we're trying to buy that from a publicly traded company and he he wants to sink his teeth into that next asset and his kids are just, you know, high school college age. So It doesn't play a large role in the single family office, but it's a very good question because typically someone is worth as much as more in the 55 to 60 plus range, and the next generation is very much an issue. And it would be a much larger role typically with other single family offices, and I imagine it will be with this one down the road.
1: Richard, what's your best real estate investing advice ever?
0: I believe it is to listen very closely first I think many people don't listen nowadays and it is pitch 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 or just wait for someone to stop talking to you know get their two cents in so you know Gary Vaynerchuk had a social media update saying that you know in a world of jabs he's a counterpuncher and I think that you know reacting after you understand somebody and you kind of empathized with where they're trying to go is gonna get you more deals done and get you further with adding value.
1: How have you seen that play out in your professional life?
0: I think the, actually the single family office client, you know, I was actually going to pass him on to somebody I knew in New York that could manage his family office for him. And I told him on a Thursday, okay, I'll refer you to John in New York. You know, he's looking to work with families like yourself. But then after having an hour and a half phone call with the patriarch, I realized that he's really real estate focused, not hedge fund manager focused or Wall Street really traditionally focused. And I realized that I should be serving the accounts, not you know, my friend who I could have, you know, referred the account to. And if I hadn't listened really closely to him, I would have lost, you know, that business opportunity and that growth experience of just being able to, to manage a single family office myself.
1: What's that conversation sound like whenever you first jump on a call with the head of that family?
0: Many times they say, I've heard about the term family office. I'm not exactly sure what it is. I think I might have part of one in place already. I want someone to be independent, looking out for my best interests. And almost always they're saying, I'd like to have some direct investments. I'd like to own an operating business, own real estate directly. And I just don't think I'm seeing excellent quality deals.
1: Is that a common theme, the not seeing enough excellent quality deals?
0: Definitely is, because when you think about how someone's going to get access to a deal, many times it's going to be through a broker. And if it's through a broker, then that deal is auction, quote unquote, it's shopped. And so is it going to be the best price deal? Are you going to be paying anything better than just walking downtown and seeing a Codwell, you know, a Marcus Miller chap sign and saying, okay, let's buy this apartment building. Like it's just going to be market price. You're not going to get a great cost basis and families like to do business with families and they want to get in on stuff at a better cost basis, buy it before it goes on the market or get special, you know, debt note, highly collateralized with an equity kicker type terms on a deal. Versus just invest like the average Joe high net worth individual. So they want to have an advantage for being ultra wealthy.
1: What would you say is the number one habit or trait that you have that's gotten you to where you're at right now?
0: I think it's prioritization of my own health. I do a lot of different things and I try to do them quickly. And, you know, listening to, for example, like Bulletproof Radio and taking my you know, brain octane oil, you know, having a treadmill desk where I can work two hours a day while walking in my office and just moving my whole life to Key Biscayne, which is, you know, this island with 12,000 people about 10 minutes from downtown Miami. And most people don't even know it exists, but it's an amazing community, and the reason I moved here is the quality of life is amazing, the weather is amazing, it just encourages me to be outside exercising, and running, and playing with my kids at the beach. And I think that's the most important success habit that I have.
1: You ready for the best ever lightning round? Ready. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. If you need money for your flippin' project, then go to fundthatflip.com forward slash ever. You'll know within 30 seconds if you're approved or not to get money for your residential flip. Go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. All right, Richard, best ever book you've read?
0: Mastering the Rockefeller Habits by Bernard.
1: Why is that the best ever?
0: Evan Pagan, my mentor, told me if he had a son that only could read one book to help him go from one million to 10 million a year in revenue, that would be it, and then after I read it, I saw enormous impact in the book. It's all about KPIs, top priorities, and then the most important thing, is Rockefeller has a choke point strategy that I've employed in my business. And it was lightning rounds, I'm not gonna go off and ramble about that, but you should definitely check it out.
1: <laughs> I'm now purchasing two books in one day. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Best ever personal growth experience and what'd you learn from it?
0: I think really starting the business, I wasn't going to. And then an attorney told me like, Richard, you have something here, there's an audience here, just go for it. And everybody else in my life told me it was too risky. And I just went for it and it went it went well done very well, and we got into a seven figure business within about three and a half years. And I think that uh, authority is taken, not given, and that's what I learned from that.
1: Best ever deal you've done?
0: I think this one is one that actually my partner closed about two years ago. Basically, he was able to work with a billion dollar family and help them in doing a cost segregation, uh, kind of engineering study on their property and save them $300 million in taxes. On that property, and because of that, he was actually given a percentage ownership share in, in that professional sports team.
1: Best ever project you're most excited about right now?
0: On Thursday this week, we're trying to close on a uh, equity stake in an insurance company, and allow us to insure commercial real estate, apartment buildings, you know, houses being flipped, et cetera. And that's going to give us a creative, you know, chess piece for working with real estate people who come to our you know family office conferences and such. And, um, also that's very much connected the same partner behind that to our work on like cost segregation and engineering studies to save money on taxes on real estate.
1: What's the biggest mistake you've made in real estate or business?
0: Biggest mistake I think is just thinking a deal is done and you're literally third version redlining an LLC creation document and one sentence can blow up the whole deal. You know, one of the counterparties in the deal can still blow it up at like, past the 11th hour the deal's never done until the money's in your bank account and everyone's happy and it's you know wheels are all officially turning
1: and what's the best ever place for the best ever listeners to reach you
0: best place would just be to uh subscribe to the family office podcast or visit either of these two websites It'd be dot com to learn about our family office club or cost to learn about you know how we work with ultra wealthy families on on tax saving stuff and um you know, if they're avid book readers and buyers like yourself, then uh, you've already plugged that for me nicely. But, uh, the single family office book, you know, it's literally 99 cents and we spent 700 hours writing it. So I think people are going to love that.
1: I anticipate I will love that. And I will do a separate podcast once I read it. And, um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to diving into that. Richard, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your advice with the best ever listeners and Boy, talking about how you got started from you know just the uh, unexpectedly you're just writing two to three times, or actually one blog post a week, getting a hundred visits, then two to three times getting on the front page of the Boston Globe. Then you've written 500 pieces. Now you're being whisked away to overseas and and talking to some very high profile and talking with some very high profile individuals at a big conference. And since then, things have just snowballed. Really love hearing about how to, really, how you got your start, and then also the the details of what what you've got going on right now with, you know, how to target family offices. As you said, that's probably got to be the most typical question that you get asked. Right. And, you know, so one thing that you mentioned is, you know, have them come to us referrals are great, but how the heck do you start out and how you, the best way. And before we started talking recording, you mentioned the book is responsible for generating the best quality clients that that you come across. So really it's about content creation in a very targeted way based on what your expertise is. And that's important where it's not a catch-all. You're not talking about just overall wealth creation. You're very specific with family offices. And I think that's an important part of this because there's a lot of books, as you mentioned, a lot of content out there just about wealth creation, but really narrowing in on a specific niche. And then talking about billionaires, what the deal, what they're looking for. They never want to, billionaire families, they never want to write a check for less than $25 million generally speaking, than the $100 million family net worth, looking for maybe $3 to $10 million ranges or sweet spot. Right now, apartment buildings and putting very little debt or a little bit of debt on those apartment buildings is typically a, a deal that they'll take a look at, assuming that we've got at least a 12% internal rate of return, or if it's a development or a severely distressed property, then about 20% internal rate of return are those general parameters. Really interesting to hear about how most families are first generation families with wealth, not third or fourth because they lost it. And one way, and this is just a lesson for anybody with kids. We can tweak it based on our financial circumstances, but what you mentioned, where the most effective way that you've seen family offices or families approach kind of raising their kids so that there's not as much entitlement and the the money doesn't dwindle away is they say, we'll pay for your education and at 30, we'll help you with a down payment on your house. And the only way to get additional money is if you apply to the family bank and the elders have the look at your business plan and we'll supply you with the seed money, assuming things check out, just really promoting the entrepreneurial aspect of things and and helping continue to grow that family's wealth. And then lastly, you know, just how you have gotten to this point, you boiled it down to prioritization of your own health. You know, you're living in Miami, our community right, side of, right outside of Miami, you got that treadmill desk and just lots of different interesting things that, that you got going on and, and really fascinating to hear how your career has progressed. Uh, and lastly, I'll mention that authority is taken, not given according to you. And I'm sure you, you heard that somewhere else because it sounds like a really cool Soundbite, um, and and I, I love it though. I love that. Wale, one of my uh, favorite rappers, says something like, you know, take it like an interception. Don't just, you know, passively wait for it to happen. And so you and Wale have something very similar in common with the mentality. I bet you didn't know that.
0: <laughs> well, in the, uh, in the single family office book, one of the chapters is titled uh, More Money, More Problems. So you'll appreciate
1: Oh, that. there you go. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So you got a <laughs> little hip hop in you. Cool. All right, Richard. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Hope you have the best ever week and we'll talk to you soon.
0: Great.
1: Thanks, Joe. I want to mention Fund That Flip because Fund That Flip is an online lender that gives you fast, convenient access to really affordable money that you need for your flip project. So if you're doing residential flips, then the main thing I imagine that you're focused on uh, or the main two things are the deal and the money. Uh, so if you've got the deal pipeline, but you need access to cash and you want to build a reputation within a uh, a group that will continue to invest their dollars into your deals, then go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. then Fund That Flips the way to go. Their team has over 200 deals under their belt. And uh, you can actually, this is crazy, you can actually be approved immediately within 30 seconds once you put in your information. Uh, so go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever and get some money for your flipping projects. Okay, here's a no-brainer. Since you're a real estate entrepreneur, you know that selecting a health insurance plan is a real pain and dealing with the whole process is a pain. That's why I've partnered up with Stride Health and they make the whole process really easy and they have a personal concierge service for you to help you out. They've got a fancy algorithm that helps find the right health plan just for you and on average, they can save you 400 bucks a year and it only takes 10 minutes. Go to stridehealth.com. Forward slash best ever. That's S T R I D E H E A L T H dot com forward slash best ever.